why would anyone give up a way of life in which they were well-fed with a nice balanced diet to one composed primarily of grains? Welcome back to Food, a cultural culinary history, a podcast brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. I'm Jason Smeagle, and like you, I'm a lifelong learner. I've been listening to The Great Courses for over 14 years, and I'm excited to be sharing this great course as a podcast with you. This podcast is hosted by Ken Albala, who's professor of history and chair of food studies at the University of the Pacific. He's also the author of Ken Albala's Food Rant, a highly popular blog for people who love food. Episode 2, What Early Agriculturalists Ate. The transition to agriculture is perhaps humanity's single most important social revolution, and one that was not without its trade-offs. In this episode, we're going to explore the factors surrounding the rise of agriculture, how plants and animals were domesticated, and why agriculture directly led to civilization as we know it. As always, if you're interested in trying any of Ken's recipes and food experiments, or want links to the suggested readings that Ken has prepared for each episode, you can find supporting materials for this podcast at thegreatcoursesdaily.com. The agricultural revolution is probably the single most important event in human history. Now, let me qualify that statement. It should be agricultural revolutions. There were several at different times around the globe, And it was not one event, but a long, gradual process wherein people made the shift from nomadic hunting and gathering way of life to a sedentary, agricultural, and civilized, meaning living in cities. In fact, the word kiwis in classical Latin uh, is related to the word civility. In other words, the change in how people got their food led directly to what we call civilization. The first question we must address, though, is why would anyone give up a way of life in which they were well-fed with a nice balanced diet to one composed primarily of grains? Why go from being relatively free? I mean, no government taxes, no complex laws or social mores to one in which they had to cooperate with a lot more people. Why go from an economy that lets you enjoy a lot of free time to one that offers very little? One where you're not bothered by a lot of material possessions or threats from others to take those possessions to larger, more complex societies in which raids and warfare become endemic. Well, first, we have to ask ourselves, did anyone actively choose to make this change? You know, we assume that progress is a rational choice to improve the human condition. We choose to have electric can openers because it makes life easier, right? Well, in this case, I don't think anyone chose to become agriculturalists. There was probably a long period of time in which populations were semi-nomadic, meaning planting some roots, leaving them, and then returning later to harvest them. Or maybe even people become sedentary before they start planting food, and that's maybe even the case in the Middle East. Mixed economies preceded a completely sedentary lifestyle. But the question still remains, why would people do that? Clearly, it has to do with need. Either their regular resources were growing more scarce and they needed some insurance against starvation, so they plant some things just in case dad doesn't come home with a gazelle. Or there was a population growth which made pressure on those resources greater. So we Homo sapiens sapiens figured out a way to support the slightly larger population by adding to the already abundant resources. But this was a strategy that was bound to have dire consequences in the long run. 
So let me introduce to you here a late 18th, early 19th century philosopher and economist named Thomas Malthus. He believed that, like all animals, human populations are subject to the availability of resources, and a population can only grow as fast as the resources can feed those new mouths. And if it gets too large, many people naturally die off. And if the resources are abundant, then the population will naturally grow faster. And it's really no different than today. You know, good economic opportunities cause people to get married a little earlier. Think of the baby boom and population rises. In harder times, people get married later and population growth slows. And of course, other factors come into play also, like the need to get an education. That usually delays reproduction, so that causes fewer active fertile years and less people. But to return to prehistoric times, even if a new technology like agriculture is invented, the population will rise dramatically but will still be limited by whatever that new technology can produce. And Malthus noted that agriculture can only be increased arithmetically while population increases exponentially. In other words, you can add another field, you can grow more food, but you have two parents which produce, say, three children, they produce nine, and the population increases exponentially. And eventually, it forces them to find new resources, which happens, or they suffer subsistence crises, which also happens. So agriculture doesn't really take us out of this grand scheme of nature. Population rising, and then the Malthusian scissors cutting them off. So even if population pressure forced some people to find new ways of getting food, it did not free them from the recurrent crises, the food shortages, and the famines. In fact, in certain respects, it made those worse because they were now depending on far fewer plants. So let's imagine you have a crop failure. One single species dies off and then there can be a major devastating famine, whereas before, no one species was depended on. So if one thing is missing, you gather or hunt something else. But apart from population pressure being a possible catalyst, let's think of another option. Resources they had been depending on suddenly become scarce, and that's probably the initial catalyst. And it may seem odd, but in those hunting and gathering days, and this is called the Upper Paleolithic or Late Stone Age, the Earth was also in the tail end of the last major ice age. And this meant that humans were relatively confined to the warmer parts of the Earth. Imagine a band sort of around the tropics. But so were the animals they were hunting and the plants they depended on. And the migratory routes of these game were relatively narrow. Uh, you know, they had to follow the sprouting grasses themselves. So what happened when the Earth began to get warmer? Imagine the temperature goes up from about 60 degrees Fahrenheit in summer to about 80 degrees or more. And that means there's a lot more food and it's further afield. And what used to be these big frozen glaciers now become lush prairies. And the animal populations are no longer contained. And we're talking here about reindeer and elk, boar, bison, all of these head north. In a sense, hunting season is closed. And because the vegetation grows more easily, the gathering is much better for humans too. Their populations also grow. But suddenly they're out of balance. You know, the hunting is harder, gathering is easier. And more mouths to feed means greater pressure to increase yield, which they accomplish, some historians speculate, by accident. So imagine the scenario. A small band of humans somewhere in the middle of what we now call the Middle East gathering things like wild chickpeas and barley, which grow on the hillsides. And now, much more abundantly due to the climate change. 
Naturally, they try to store some of them and keep them from rats and such. And underground actually works very well, except when it rains. And some of them begin to sprout, and they come up as new plants right inside your village. Some people surmise that cultivation arose something like this. They also surmise that if every year the same family realized that they could just take a few grains and just throw them in a convenient spot each year and then have them come up, they could save themselves that long trek up the hillside, when, and then the pattern of growing some foods would be established. And of course, the nascent farmer each year would pick up the largest kernels to save for planting. And in this way, historians guess, plants were domesticated. Now think of what that word means, to be brought into the house, the word domus in Latin. It means to actively change a species, to accentuate certain desired traits, either intentionally or, or even accidentally, until that species no longer resembles the plant that grew in the wild. It was pretty much the same thing with animals, too. Dogs are probably the first animals to be domesticated, again by accident. Imagine them following around the human camps for scraps, providing some watch from other predators. And after that, mountain goats, uh, sheep, and they're naturally docile, they're herding animals that can be made to follow a human. And over years, they can be selectively bred for size, for milk production, for the number of kids and lambs they produce, whatever. So not only were humans changing the landscape, but already changing species to get the traits they wanted. And not only can these animals be trained to stay in herds, but they're ruminants. Now think of why that's important. Ruminants can be fed grass, which humans can't eat. And why is that an advantage over a carnivorous animal? Well, not only are carnivorous animals not, not as nice, but you have to grow animals just to feed them, and it's not efficient. You know, even if you could find a way to keep a tiger, say, captive. So let's think of where this happened. The first place the agricultural revolution hits is a region called the Fertile Crescent. And it's an arc covering what's today Iraq, Syria, Eastern Turkey, Lebanon, and Israel. And this happened about 10,000 years ago, around 8,500 BC. And this region just happened to luck out, or not as the case may be by having a lot of easily domesticated plants and animals. So think of these goats, the sheep, the cows, and what do these animals provide that would induce a population to stay with them and protect them? They give you meat, obviously, uh, wool and hides, milk, uh, and that can even be stored in the form of cheese. We'll talk about that in a moment. And all of those things form a kind of insurance, right? They also provide traction in the case of cows and horses especially, and transport, and maybe most importantly, manure. Serves as fertilizer, makes everything grow much more easily. So the Fertile Crescent lucked out in having these particular species. But also there's the wild ancestor of wheat all over the place. This is einkorn or triticum monococcum, spelt. Emmer is very, very important also. And this plant, and really just a few others on Earth, are the key to the whole puzzle. They have a relatively high protein content, so they can become staple crops. Maybe 8 to 14% protein. It's not as much as meat, but people can actually live on it as the basis of their diet. And it can be stored. And so without wheat, what we know as civilization would never have happened in the Fertile Crescent. Or for that matter, anywhere. You know, if there weren't these staple domesticated plants, think of rice in Asia, think of corn in Mesoamerica, potatoes, quinoa in South America, 
In Africa, there are whole civilizations based on sorghum or teff in Ethiopia. So it's also very interesting that in each of these civilizations, the staple takes on a deep religious significance. Wheat is the gift of the goddess Ceres in classical civilization. Or uh, for Yahweh among the Hebrews, it's a sacrificial plant. You can offer it to God. Uh, and the same is true of rice in Asia and corn in America. But in each case, it was a staple starch that A, allowed the population to grow in the first place, B, caused a need for further organizational rigor, what we would call civilization, and where there was no such staple, invariably the population remained small, uh, limited by whatever they could gather, or, um, and more advanced civilizations really never appeared there. So think of California. There was really never an incentive to change there because the resources were always abundant. Think of oak trees, they're everywhere, they provide acorns, lots of animals, fish on the sea coasts and rivers. So why even really try to domesticate anything? And in fact, oaks can't be domesticated. You, you can plant the seedlings you find, but they can't be improved because, say, the odd sweet one that you plant can also produce bitter offspring because they actually have to have two sets of genes to reproduce. They're like apples in that way. They never really come true to seed. So what I'm saying is that even though there might have been similar pressures at, at one point or another, there just wasn't as much you could make into a staple in California. Uh, it's a, a little different on the East Coast of America. They have sunflowers. Uh, eventually, they get corn from Mesoamerica. So they actually did become agriculturalists there. But I think it's important to keep in mind that in the many places where agriculture never arose around the world, think of Australia, the Amazon, the Kalahari Desert, it's not that these were somehow less intelligent or savage peoples, which is, of course, what the Europeans thought of them, but rather they did not need agriculture. Or they just, there weren't the right plants and animals that could be domesticated. And usually they were cut off from outside influences, so plants really couldn't be introduced. Another factor, and this is one that Jared Diamond stresses, I'm, I'm not sure it will stand up to the scrutiny over time, but he believes that an easily traversed east-west axis orientation for a continent allows the rapid transmission of domesticated species. So I think the Eurasian continent, it just took a couple of thousand years for agriculture to spread uh, to the Mediterranean and then on to northern Europe because the climates across that band are relatively similar all the way across. So by 7,000 BC, agriculture's in Greece. By 6,000, it's in Italy. And then eastern Spain, central Germany, it's about 5,000 then in southern Britain. And some crops obviously don't make it. You know, olives, it's just not hot enough for them, but wheat definitely did. Now, the difference, if you think of a north-south axis, transmission is much more difficult, like from North America to South America or for, from northern Africa to sub-Saharan Africa. There's too many climate zones to cross. And what that means is that what may grow in a temperate zone in the north is only going to grow in another temperate zone way to the south on the other side of the equator. So, say, Ethiopia and South Africa, or California and Argentina. If you're enjoying this podcast and want more of the same, you can find hundreds of audio courses on all sorts of topics, all taught by brilliant professors like Ken Albala, at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash podcasts, the new audio and video streaming site from The Great Courses the leader in lifelong learning, featuring in-depth courses on subjects ranging from history, science, Tai Chi, anthropology, Spanish, guitar, and a whole lot more. 
At The Great Courses Plus, you can learn everything about anything. So let's have a brainstorming session. How would growing plants and keeping animals not only lead to a more sedentary life, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to, though if you're a shepherd, you have abundant resources near a permanent village, but let's say agriculture, settled villages or towns, as we know existed in places like Jericho or Katalyuik in Turkey or Ur in Mesopotamia, how does that lead to civilization? Well, the entire change is prehistoric, but archaeology suggests ways to speculate. Imagine there are more people living close together, getting in fights and things, and that means that they need more agreed ways of doing things. Uh, perhaps eventually they need formal laws. And the possibility is there also for further specialization. You have more people, and everyone may still do some farming, but let's imagine one guy is making the pots, another tans the hides, another specializes in one specific crop, and what you have then is trade. These people begin to exchange these goods with each other. And when there's trade, of course you need some way to regulate it, right? And they need to regulate um, irrigation, other things that happen on a wide scale. It needs some kind of official authority to make rules for you. And what we have is the development of a kind of social structure. Once you have a different kind of people on top making those rules, they can live differently. They're, they don't actually have to farm anymore. What you then have also is another kind of person just below these rulers. These are another kind of class. Let's imagine first that the ruler needs someone to keep him in power, right? Let's imagine there are soldiers. These people may collect the taxes, the people who have to support the ruler so they can do it full time. They also have to protect the group from outside threats, or they may be sent to seize booty from their neighbors, or even seize new territory. Imagine the population is growing fast, and uh, in this case, it's an advantage to have a big population. You have more soldiers, they can go off and conquer their neighbors, right? You have another kind of person also develop. Imagine there are priests, what does a priest do? Priests legitimate the ruler. They create rituals to appease the gods. Uh, and of course, the, they support this priestly class, right? Um, the, with taxes. What other roles do these rituals play? Think of it. They, they serve to define behavior by socializing the members of the group. They bring them under the authority of those in power, and that creates cohesion among the group, right? Priests also tend to be the ones who develop writing systems. They, they keep the religious texts. They maintain the dogma. They do that with cuneiform and sumer as the oldest written form of writing. But priests also record official laws for the state. Uh, and in most of the early states, priests also act as bureaucrats. So imagine now we have these rulers and soldiers and priests. They form a kind of upper class. What else will be there to serve them? What kind of specialists? Imagine that artists, a specialized profession of people providing luxury goods, adorning the palaces and temples, cooking for the elite. And it's the first time you can have anything like a professional chef, someone who spends their living just cooking for others. But let's get back to Malthus. In spite of the advent of civilization, we're still playing the same old balancing of resources with population game. Um, what is there now to act as the scissors? Realized population really, really explodes here. 
I mean, a more steady, even if less nutritious diet means less amenorrhea for women of childbearing age, um, a lot more babies surviving infancy. Uh, they don't have to be trudged from place to place anymore, right? And there's great incentive to have larger families too, right? You have more hands to grow food in the fields. So what's culling the population now? Uh, it's some new factors. War on a bigger scale. Big populations with lots of cool stuff to steal, a bunch of bigger engagements. We're not talking about small-time raids anymore. We're talking about, um, you know, large planned invasions of other people. So war is a big factor. But I think maybe even more importantly, there is disease. Remember that people are in one place. The water that they drink becomes polluted very quickly. All those diseases transmuted from animal pathogens. All that sneezing in close quarters. And ironically, these diseases really stink for the individuals who die from them, right? <laughs> but, but a really smart germ learns how not to kill a toast, right? It makes a lot more sense to live with it, to make that person sneeze and pass it on to other people, or, or even to get it transmitted sexually. In other words, viruses and bacteria evolve to exploit their hosts, not kill them. And on the other hand, people also evolve to build up immunities to those diseases. So that a disease that's really very nasty when it first arrives gradually becomes less virulent in a population that's lived with it for many generations. And this means that when civilized people with long contact with disease meet the comparatively uncivilized or isolated or even, even a hunter and gatherer, they sometimes wipe them out completely uh, because they've had no previous contact with these diseases. And Europeans, for example, totally wipe out the guanches in the Canary Islands, the Arawak in the Caribbean, the Tasmanians when they finally explore the area around Australia. And I'll come back to this story when we get to the Columbian Exchange. But realize here that agricultural and pastoral peoples, and even more so the civilized, have another secret weapon that gives them an advantage over others, and that's disease. So let's think of what these first civilizations ate. Okay, I've mentioned um, wheat and its relatives, things like barley and chickpeas and lentils. Those provide a kind of staple base. You know, those, those give people the bulk of their protein. Um, many of them are mostly starch, but you eat enough of it and you can really become fueled on that and it gives you enough protein. There's also vegetables. I mean, there's cabbages and lettuces and cucumbers, things like that. But interestingly, there's a very small amount of animal protein. You know, the goats and the sheep and the cows. Um, th these domestic varieties tend to be bigger, and of course they're a little fatter than their wild cousins. But the average farmer really doesn't have much incentive to kill his animals. You know, sometimes if he has a big flock, uh, he'll kill the young ones in the autumn if he can't feed them through the winter. But you rarely kill your mature animals and eat them. Pigs are another case entirely. They are eventually domesticated, but usually long after the others. And why is an interesting question. I mean, think of what pigs provide. You can't milk a pig. Uh, you can't herd them either. Uh, and they don't eat grass anyway, so you can't just send them on the hillside and let them feed. Um, they're really not good for much except food. But interestingly, they'll eat anything. They'll even eat garbage. Um, and also because they're easier to catch in the wild than feed through the year, the pattern is generally that they leave the pigs in the forest, and they hunt them rather than keep them. Uh, that's true of Europe right up into med medieval times. It's, it's a little different in China, completely different, in fact. Uh, but we'll get to that a few lectures down. 
Also something almost totally new in the human diet is dairy products. It's pretty certain that human beings did not evolve an ability to digest milk past infancy. Because in many places that don't regularly drink milk, there's still um, lactose intolerance, and that's the ability to break down lactose in milk. And only in places where they've depended on it for many centuries from domesticated cattle does it become less pronounced, and then they can actually drink milk. And the percentage of people who remained intolerant would have been naturally culled from the population over time. So they would have been less well-nourished and reproduced at a lesser rate than the lactose-tolerant. And interestingly, in the Middle East and in Europe, lactose intolerance is rare, but it's high in China, it's high in Africa, it's very high among Native Americans. Um, although interestingly, on the other hand, the fact that more and more Chinese consume milk regularly today without any problem suggests that this um, whole theory may be flawed. But in any case, cheese complicates this whole issue because young cheeses do contain lactose, but it breaks down the longer you age it. And most cultures that make regular use of milk in the diet either ferment it, like kumis or yogurt, or they make it into cheese. And of course, cheese doesn't spoil, right? But ironically, cheese is the product of bacteria. It's not, it will not keep unless it's actually invaded by these other species. And if I had to make a generalization, I think next to these few domesticated species, the most important new foods invented by the earliest civilizations are the product of things going bad, or, or let's say rather being colonized by benign bacteria. It's a very, very modern prejudice that thinks of bacteria as the enemy. Uh, in fact, we need bacteria to survive, especially those in our gut. You know, most of the organisms in us aren't actually us. They're the bacteria that help us digest food. Uh, we poetically call these intestinal flora. And of course, by controlling the conditions under which good bacteria proliferate in our food, civilized humans invented a whole new series of food. Um, let's think. In fact, they're some of the best things in the whole world. Think of bread. Right, that's risen with yeast that falls. It's in the atmosphere, it falls into the bread and makes it rise. The lactobacilli cause it to be sour and give it a nice flavor. That's all a natural process. Wine and beer is another very good example. Wine, all you do basically is crush up the grapes and then the yeast attack it. It starts to bubble and it turns into wine all by itself. But, but controlling that process and storing the wine is the product of civilization. And of course, for civilizations, wine becomes central, not just to their social rituals, but to their religions too. And I could say, in fact, the same thing about cheese. You know, cheese is something that you can make very, very easily just by separating the solid parts out of the way in cheese. But to make it last, you need a culture in there. You need a bacteria to actually lower the pH to make it sour, and actually that will make it last. And if you think olives, pickled vegetables, fruits that are dried, salted things, all of these things that are, are ways to preserve fruits and vegetables. And now that you've got a cabinet, you can keep, let's imagine, clay jars full of these things. And the fact that many of these plants take years to mature and bear fruit, um, an olive takes 12 years before it actually bears enough fruit. Grapes, I mean, these things are really long-term investments. Uh, and they force people to stay put, and they force them to specialize. And of course, only the wealthiest can produce it in a lot of quantity, which means they specialize in this and they trade it far away. I think one of the most important things is olive oil. We think of olive oil 
in ancient times. That be, it's stored in these huge clay pithoi. It's shipped all the way across the Mediterranean. First they wheel it on carts, then they eventually put it in boats. It gets everywhere, and it's very, very important in the diet, not just for calories, but for maintaining health. And the ability to store large quantities of food has another very important effect. You don't have to eat everything you can and move on like a hunter, hunter and gatherer would. Um, all these things can be kept from season to season and stored long-term in case of crop failure or drought or invasion. So although they may have had a less varied diet and calories come from mostly from carbohydrates now, it is more predictable, even though it's a little more monotonous. Now, don't get me wrong. There's still devastating subsistence crises, but short-term feast and famine becomes a more regular diet throughout the year. And it's a diet that, incidentally, can support a much larger population. So what other consequences are there? Now, obviously, a lot more land is going to have to be altered to grow these crops. The earliest civilizations invented plows to cut through the soil. They developed irrigation systems to transport water and uh, irrigate land. And as we'll see when we get to Sumer, they sometimes inadvertently uh, made the soil overly saline in the process. Um, in the long term, they destroy it. Um, but even in the best of situations, the same crops grown over and over in the same spot, as all gardeners know, causes soil depletion. Um, so despite the selective breeding of species to do things like increase the seed yield ratio, the tendency is to waste the land over successive generations, which of course prompts people to move elsewhere, usually to go and invade their neighbors. Um, and the result is a very seriously war-oriented society. There is another important class of foods that alters society, and that's fats. And I mentioned olive oil as certainly one of the most important, but let's not forget also um, salted lard, suet, uh, sheep tail fat, and that's still eaten in the Middle East, uh, and even various nut oils that are very easily extracted. You just crush them. Butter is important in some ancient civilizations. Remember, they, they actually made it in Ur, and uh, Abraham, who comes from Ur, mentions it. Butter is important in Indic civilizations, the Hittites, the Germanic peoples, all, all Indo-European cultures have a central place for butter. Um, but interestingly, not Greece or Rome, really. They, they don't depend on butter so much. But why fats are, are important? Not only do these provide a storable source of extra calories, but we have a whole new cooking medium. Think of frying and sauteing. And apart from being arguably very pleasant, right? Why is this economically important? Frying cooks food very quickly. You need a very small amount of fuel. You don't need to make a big fire. You don't need to boil a whole pot of water for something. You just heat up the oil and put it in and it cooks. Okay. The next important group of food is fowl. And as you know, the wild fowl have been eaten for millennia, right? But domesticating fowl is a little different. Chickens, as well as ducks and geese, that, that actually becomes very important in the ancient diet, um, not so much necessarily for its meat, but also for a supply of eggs, which you don't really have to spend much on them at all. You let the animals peck around the yard or feed in a pond, and when the hen stops producing, then you eat them. I should mention also chickens, gallus gallus, are probably native to India, the Indus River Valley civilizations, are the first to domesticate them. And in fact, there are seals from Mohenjo-Daro with little chickens on them. So, so that's one. Uh, guinea fowl is another, which comes from Northern Africa that uh, gets to Europe in classical times. So what's left? Um, other foods that are important are fish, 
and those are still primarily caught wild until modern times. But we'll eventually get to fish ponds in the Middle Ages. But um, but there is a kind of shellfish farming, and that really hasn't changed much since uh, since ancient times. Essentially, you take a rope and you seed it with a tiny oyster spawn, and then it grows into full-size oysters, and you just reel it in. And it's not really farming. It's not really domestication, per se, but it is a kind of farming. Um, the same could be said for snails. You just gather them in the wild, you fatten them, and then you obviously eat them. So all of these changes in food production and consumption constituted the greatest single revolution in the history of our species. And they changed us from one among many competing creatures to being the dominant life form on the planet, ushering in what many scientists have begun to consider a new geological era called the Anthropocene Epoch. So next time, we will take a closer look at the complex civilizations and touch a little more deeply on their foodways. We'll look a little bit at ancient Sumer, and then we'll focus in on Egypt. Thanks for listening to Episode 2 of Food, a Cultural Culinary History. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast and want more of the same, you can find hundreds of audio courses on all sorts of topics, all taught by brilliant professors like Ken Albala, at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash podcasts, featuring in-depth courses on subjects ranging from history, science, genealogy, chess, photography, wine, you name it. At The Great Courses Plus, you can learn everything about anything.